Potential and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest today uh, involved in creating a better tomorrow. Uh, today, we have the honor of being joined by Sava Kurdamalidis, who is the founder and chief executive officer of an organization called Crowdfunded Cures, uh, which is focused on developing this mission to incentivize clinical trials uh, for off-patented therapies that are normally ignored because the monopoly price ultimately can't be enforced with patents, so no incentive to develop by uh, biotech companies or big pharma. Uh, Sava is a commercial and intellectual property consultant, legal counsel, and a patent attorney. He has two decades of experience uh, advising in relation to intellectual properties, commercial law, as well as crypto. Uh, he graduated uh, with both a Bachelor's of Science and an LLM uh, from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Uh, he's admitted uh, as a barrister and a solicitor in the High Court of New Zealand and a lawyer in the Supreme Court of Queensland in Australia. Uh, he is also a, a New Zealand and Australian patent and trademark attorney. And very interestingly, in 2014, Sava conducted his thesis on this theme of alternatives to the patent system, specifically focused on development of medicines. Uh, he crowdfunded, uh, he founded Crowdfunded Cures uh, as a New Zealand charity back in 2013 to ultimately implement this idea of using a rather unique pay for success contract model uh, as an incentive to find new uses for these off-patented drugs and other uh, so-called unmonopolizable therapies. Uh, we're honored to have him with us today. Uh, lots of interesting topics to get into, uh, but uh, Sava Kredimalidis, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much. Uh, great. Uh, and thanks for the awesome introduction. Um, so I, I would love to uh, start off by hearing the background story to all this and a little bit, uh, not just about you, but take us up until the point in is it 2014 where you published Deadly Gaps in the Patent System and Analysis of Current and Alternative Mechanisms for Incentivizing Development of Medical Therapies. And for everyone listening, you can you can find this amazing document. It's very long, uh, but it's out there on the internet and uh, really is a nice synopsis uh, of, of, of what this story is all about. But Sava, take us into uh, sort of that early background journey that led up to this. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, it, it really did come around from at the time um, I, I had an opportunity to go back to uh, uni and my um, partner at the time had got really sick uh, with Crohn's. And and as you do when you when that happens, you go online and kind of look around and see what, what treatment options there are. 
and and the main one, obviously, Humira, massive blockbuster drug. But there were other evidence around, you know, dietary interventions, particularly uh, enteric nutrition, uh, things like off-patent drugs uh, like low-dose naltrexone, um, other dietary interventions and and supplements. Uh, the problem was is that those uh, treatments, they got a lot of evidence that, um, well, sort of a lot of hype really online as to the efficacy. But when you uh, try to dig behind it, look at what the evidence was, it typically was a very um, small uh, evidence base, like a very small clinical trial. Obviously, these kinds of uh, therapies tend to be uh, publicly funded and um, often the, the those funding agencies do not want to fund large clinical trials. And then sort of from my uh, commercial and IP background, I understood that essentially it was because of this failure to, to enforce a monopoly price. There wasn't really a business model around this. And that and then I did do uh, biology post-grad, although I didn't really have an opportunity to do a lot of that work and in and, and, and my legal work, mainly working for tech companies. But I it was really frustrating to me, I think, and would be frustrating to say scientists that essentially uh, medicine or the practice of medicine, at least the commercialization of medicine, is being guided by these arbitrary uh, patent incentives, and which are essentially just another kind of contract. But for whatever reason, we don't actually value the clinical trial data where we can't enforce a monopoly price. And this kind of led me down into the doing the thesis and saying, well, like this, even if you were to, you know, I was considering doing a PhD and, and, and looking at, you know, how it could help with Crohn's and things like that. But then I thought, well, it's actually more important, I think, to try and figure out how you sort of can address this commercial um, disincentive. Because, I mean, IP is an amazing uh, tool. It's it's created a lot of the amazing things that surround us today. We probably wouldn't, you know, arguably wouldn't exist without kind of the 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 the, the hand of um, you know invisible hand of of Adam Smith and the commerce and 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 being able to basically uh, you know privatize the, and, and monetize the, your, your efforts um, uh, through through this sort of private property idea. But the idea that the 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 fact that you can't create a business model around these kinds of um, uh, what we I called unmonopolizable therapies uh, was I thought was a significant problem and a, and a missed uh, and a gap in our current incentive system. So that's what kind of led me down this area. And I did so yeah spend a couple of years uh, on on the thesis. It's a quite a big one, kind of around uh, sort of eighty thousand words plus um, two two hundred thousand if you include footnotes and things. So definitely don't feel like you have to have a look, but it's. Uh, it would be amazing if if, if, if if it increased the readership to 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 a few more if somebody's got a bit. But um, I am basically yeah set up uh, crowdfunded cures as a charity to essentially implement the ideas and the thesis. And the core idea was that um, in the patent system, there's always been this kind of argument that other uh, prize-like incentives might be a better kind of alternative to patents because essentially with prizes you can. Uh, you don't have to have this monopoly price and and these um, what they call uh, dead weight losses and things and negative externalities as a result of of um, uh, of basically charging things at a monopoly price. And with the prize, you can basically open source uh, and and have have the have the benefit of the um, of whatever the innovation innovation is immediately accessible. But um, you don't uh, and and but you still have a a commercial or or uh, a basically a traditional commercial model around or a market model around generating that data. Um, however, it hadn't really been uh, looked at in the context of 
these particular kinds of therapies, like there was Bernie Sanders talked about replacing all of pharmaceutical patents with a with a big $80 billion prize. I thought that wasn't really practical, but <laughs> you could definitely do a, a, a much smaller targeted kind of prize-like incentive, which really focused on what I call these unmonopolizable therapies. So things like uh, repurposing off-patent drugs, uh, diet supplements, uh, lifestyle interventions, plant medicines, all these kinds of things, which could be very medically effective, but because we can't essentially incentivize the 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 getting return on investment for funding the clinical trials, they they were sort of very underfunded, and and you tended not to see these things affect our clinical practice. So that's that's a bit of background. Excellent, excellent. And and let's just talk about the sort of the the scope of um, this. Uh, sort of pharmacotherapeutic wasteland per se, because I, I think we need to put that all in perspective for the uh, for the audience that may be less aware that you know um, we have right a tremendous uh, amount of generic medicines out there that have been around for decades um, that have only been developed for maybe one indication, two indications. So there's a tremendous dimension there that you know can be you know. We can we can dive into it. These drugs have been tested in clinical trials, and and all the safety work is done. So it, the traditional billions of dollars to develop them for indication X as opposed to indication Y is much less. So you have that universe, uh, and then you have, as you were just mentioning, when you got into lifestyle and, and diet and so forth, you have all this other stuff uh, like the nutraceuticals and, and the botanicals that you know. They may not, um, they, they have their own unique situation and we'll, we'll get into when we get to commercialization later on, there's some interesting things we can chat about, but uh, here you have products that, you know, they had no patent at all, maybe their nature or whatever, uh, but they're very unique in their composition. Um, and, you know, I love, I love to point out the story that, you know, one of the most uh, prescribed drugs of all times has never had competition. It's been off patent since the 1940s, and that's you know Pfizer's Premarin, which is a nondescript mixture of horse urine estrogens. No patent at all, but they have nice little monopoly. So there are kind of unique little buckets as well uh, that you can you can throw into what you're doing here. Talk about sort of the the landscape in general, about how you look at it in terms of you know what are important targets in the, in the short term, uh, traditional generic drugs versus you know I know one of the things you presented on in the past was uh, yeah, you talked about uh, BCG vaccine and, and sort of a repurposing it for stuff like diabetes, and here you have a 120 year old product that yeah, most of the monopoly is actually in how you manufacture it as opposed to uh, to everything else. But talk a little bit about the the landscape so the audience can get a a picture, a, a broader picture on all this. Yeah, it's uh, so it is huge. There's this massive blue ocean. Um, there's something like seven and a half thousand uh, generic drugs that are off patent. Um, studies have shown that once a drug goes generic, essentially there's, there's its chance of getting regulatory approval for a new use is, is almost zero. Um, you might get some, you know, there's, there's some very... Uh, specific examples of where, where, where it can happen, like it's particularly recent history with uh, dexamethasone, uh, and, and that was a sort of chance discovery that could help uh, reduce um, risk of death uh, for, for people that are intubated. Um, yep. You know, obviously the ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine won't go there. 
but um the you know the, there are a bunch of of these drugs but unfortunately they're, they're not um really looked at unless you can reformulate them and then oftentimes um actually the, the original formulation might be better um or you know this is this might be the case with uh, ketamine versus S-ketamine. Ketamine is a racemic mixture that's yep. been shown to be uh, actually uh, used off-label. It can actually have better efficacy for treatment-resistant impression and other uh, indications particularly. Um, but uh, S-ketamine is, is the intranasal version that they basically created in order to wrap a monopoly and be able to enforce a monopoly around it and, 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 and have a new molecule, but it, it's, uh, it's less, uh, it's less bioavailable and, and there's evidence to show that it's potentially not as effective. So, you know, there, and then and as you talk about, uh, there's, there's like 50,000 or so nutraceuticals, if not more plant medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this massive, massive, uh, universe of, of molecules that are already out there. And the other point is that they're, uh, typically been used uh, in people like for many years, um, particularly generics and nutraceuticals are designated as as generally recognized as safe compounds. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously a lot of them are not, but uh, these things have a lot of safety advantages that say a new brand new novel molecule uh, might not have that hasn't been used in humans. So, um, so there's this kind of untapped resource um, and also this kind of this focus on the sort of practice of medicine to essentially with the pharma uh, industry, just focus on what can we patent and monopolize and, and how can we kind of uh, basically game the patent system or, or use other kinds of tricks like, you know, to, to try and, uh, you know, restrict the supply or have some sort of uh, yeah way of, of enforcing a monopoly, but that might not be available for, for all sorts of uh, medical interventions that, and and the other point is is around you know if you've got the monopoly your you, what you you're incentivized to do is sell as much of this drug as you possibly can so right. things like p- personalized medicine before the patent runs out so things like personalized medicine really kind of take a bit of a back foot um, and and uh, essentially you know you've got things other incentives potentially like more controversial like wanting to treat um, symptoms and and not looking at, at uh, curative interventions and things like. For example, like antibiotics and things like that have a very limited uh, incentive under the patent system typically because right. they're like used third in line um, and they're not very high volume products. Um, and so uh, this is where we've seen a little bit of reform actually with these Netflix subscription models where it just a fixed amount is paid every year. It's a little bit like a prize yep. model sure. where, where they basically just say what, what it's worth. So. Yeah. So, but but yeah, a lot of a lot of examples. Uh, I guess yeah, the the ones that we're most interested in, I think, ketamine versus ketamine. Uh, I think that's a bit of a that's a bit of a no brainer um, to take. Uh, but unfortunately, no business model at the moment under the payment system because ketamine is like two dollars a dose. Very interested in things like ketogenic diets, showing a lot of uh, promise for a lot of different diseases, particularly type two diabetes, but also you know things like cancer. Cancer cells require 10 times as much sugar as normal cells as acidic glycolysis, right. Warburg effect, and, and, and ketogenic diet has shown efficacy in certain kinds of cancer, particularly uh, glioblastoma. Obviously, these are very small, tiny trials, but you know, what if this was better than, I mean, glioblastoma, you've got 90 to 90, 95 to 99% chance of dying. Uh, it's, it's just your treatment options are, are just dismal. But um, nobody, what what if ketogenic diet could could be a game changer for for a lot of people? But there's there's this kind of disconnect between the 
the potential for this therapy and the fact that, well, we don't see it as medicine or it's not seen as credible just because you can't uh, wrap a business model around funding the clinical trials. Okay, so now we've laid the groundwork uh, and, and explained to the audience that there's a potential <laughs> ocean of, of, of pharmacotherapeutic interventions here that's, you know, orders of magnitude larger than the sort of the current pharmaceutical industry's um, uh, payload, or, you know, what they deal with. Um, let's now dive into crowdfunded cures and a bit of the the model you've created there. So initially started from your thesis, um, you created a concept around a pay for success contract or a social impact bond that ultimately um, will bring other investors in to help fund these um, these types of trials in return for uh, certain payments based on how much quality of life adjusted years and so forth. Um, so I would take your time with this part because I think this is extremely important. Um, you have screen sharing ability there if you want to go to some slides, but let's walk through uh, the crowdfunding curative model and, and what exactly you're thinking this is going to look like. Yeah, so it's it's changed. Uh, we're, we're evolving, but ultimately the the core idea of it is that um, you can use contracts in a way to create a business model around something that might not have a business model, and particularly around the delivery and the funding of data and successful clinical trials. Because essentially, when when a drug company is is doing uh, its its, its R and D. It's not actually the molecule that's the the important thing. It's the clinical trial data showing that right. the molecule is safe and effective. Yep. And and the mechanism to to make your money back is just selling that molecule at a very high price and and, and trying to restrict access to the molecule. When uh, there are other business models around potentially um, having say a payer like a health insurer or a government, say CMS, VA, etc., NHS or or your large health insurers. Um, agree that uh, to purchase essentially your branded version of of this this treatment protocol, whatever it might be, uh, subject to say FDA approval, and then agreeing in advance that they will pay a a premium for that, and they'll basically agree to say uh, purchase it for, for X number of years, and that that agreement is something called an advanced market commitment. And that would enable you then or whoever it might be to basically go off and uh, do the clinical trials. There's no risk taken on by the payer. Basically, from their perspective, actually, um, what they can do is they can ensure that the advanced mark commitment is a lot, uh, that, that whatever they've committed is a lot less than their potential uh, savings, cost savings overall, or, or quality impact, what they call a quality adjusted life year. Typically, this is what is how um, medicines are paid for, or the, 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 particularly outside of the US and the NHS, they'll look at a medicine and say, okay, we're willing to pay $50,000 per year of, of healthy life, assuming 100% healthy life, we're willing to pay $50,000 for that. And the reason why they do that is not because they're trying to be arbitrary, but they're saying that, look, we've got a We've got a limited budget, and this, and and assuming everyone's life is is equal, although there's some weightings given, obviously, to more vulnerable people and 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 older people, younger people get a much higher cost per quality. And I think for cancer drugs, it ends up being sort of hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars per quality, um, just because of social uh, norms around treating people with cancer. Um, but it ends up that they they can basically come up with a price that they're willing to pay. 
And but this hasn't been done before. Like it, I, I mentioned, it has been done for antibiotics just recently, and in the UK they did this thing called a Netflix type subscription, where they basically said, okay, if you develop these antibiotics, because the value of the antibiotics is not going to be through the through the sales of these um, through the individual sales of them, but having access to them, we'll agree to pay you say two hundred fifty million dollar million pounds rather over say 10 years um, to have access to these antibiotics so in the same way i think you know you could say come up with a similar model where uh, you essentially have somebody propose a treatment protocol and then the government can then sort of negotiate and say look if you fund the clinical trials and you get these these this outcome and we get regulatory approval then we can uh we will uh pay for that there is a downside to this model whereby um, obviously you don't really know in advance what the treatment's going to do. Often, right. you know, it's quite difficult to, to tell in advance how this treatment is actually going to work. Also, governments, health insurers, they don't like to kind of budget for things three or four years in advance. Uh, you know, and obviously a lot of drug development, it can take 10, 15 years, but the advantage with drug repurposing and nutraceuticals and, and lifestyle interventions, things you, you don't necessarily have to take 10, 15 years because particularly if things are already relatively safe, you can sort of start phase two sure. clinical trials straight, straight away. But even then you've got to kind of look at uh, predicting, you know, what budgets for, for the future and, and, and basically having a contractual commitment that might stretch say three or four years into the future. So that's and and so I can show the diagram basically just sort of show how that works um, sure. just briefly on that. So that's the uh, pay for success model, and essentially, as I was saying, you the 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 thing that you want first is to go first. You go to a success payer and you say to them, "Hey, I've got a repurposed generic, say, um, looking at um, you know ketamine, let's say, the treat for treatment resistant depression," and you would negotiate to say, "Hey, if we got this through." FDA approval, how much would you pay for this? And let's say the, the payer is at the moment paying um, a lot more money for another drug, which is might be less effective, say S-ketamine or, or similar efficacy, let's say, um, but they're paying, you know, um, $500 million a year for that or $100 million a year, then it would make sense for them. And they've projected that they're going to be paying that into the future to make sense for them to make a contractual commitment to say, if you can show that these drugs are equivalent or this other one is better, then we will pay you uh, a smaller amount for your version of the of the generic, or and this was, this would allow a competitive uh, process to have happen. So that would be called a, a pay for success contract. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And this the success payer would be the would be the, say the, the who the whoever the health insurer was or right. CMS or VA or, or NHS, whoever that might be. And then once you've got that contract on the back of that contract, then you can raise investment to do the clinical trials. The investors are happy to take on that risk. I mean, that's normal for them. They would crunch the numbers, figure out, okay, we can if we can make a hundred million out of this. And you would also negotiate with multiple payers, at the, uh, sort of in advance. That that would add to potentially to the transactional complexity. But I don't think it would be um, impossible, particularly if, and with a lot of large uh, sort of uh, generic drugs. Actually, you wouldn't necessarily need to. Um, uh, get these commitments with that many payers you could just get some big enough with enough payers that that uh, eventually you would get impact investors saying okay well i'm willing to put the money up whatever that might be 50 million dollars or whatever to to go through fda approval 
And then um, those impact investors would then basically yeah, go fund the researchers or the biotech company to, to go through the clinical trials. And, um, you know, if it doesn't succeed, they, they, they would lose their investment. And that's basically just a normal biotech company. If it does work out, then they basically and get that, they get an FDA approved repurposed generic. They've actually got the on-label version of that generic. So um, and then they can then uh, they've got some guaranteed sales with that payer. They would then actually be able to sell it to other payers. Uh, the other payers could substitute a low cost generic, perhaps. But, um, you know, you could use method of use patents and uh, potentially reformulation if you really sure. wanted to um, try and there, there's other business models around that but uh, the idea is that though you've probably pretty much made uh, because your costs are a lot lower for repurposing generic drug repurposing it's, yeah. there's a lot lower hump to kind of get over that activation energy to get through to market and then also you you could uh, if as long as you price at a relatively reasonable level uh, other payers would um uh, be willing to to also negotiate uh, similar supply agreements, um, but there is that kind of activation energy problem. Um, and the other point, uh, and I think this is where the another model that I'm very interested in, and where I think it's it's uh, basically the pay for success model, but it's done in a very very tight way. Um, but it, it's it's where you have a low cost drug and you compare it to a very expensive drug and yep. Because of those, um, the cost difference between the low-cost drug and expensive drug, let's just use ketamine versus esketamine as an example. Uh, so ketamine is like very, very cheap, $2 a dose. Um, yep. Esketamine is around $850 a dose. It's around $25,000 to $50,000 plus a year. But let's just mm -hmm. say, for instance, it's twenty, say it's $25,000 a year. Um, just by doing a clinical trial, assuming that, say, CMS or VA, whoever they might be, are paying $25,000 a year at least for uh, esketamine, then that means for a 1,000 patients, they're paying $25 million uh, mm -hmm. for those to, to service that patient population. Now, if you were to do a clinical trial and you would randomize that patient population of 1,000 people, put half of them on ketamine, half of them on esketamine, then that every patient you put on ketamine instead of esketamine is like a $25,000 saving. And that, oh, yeah. that, that 500, those 500 people times $25,000 is $12.5 million cost saving and for vis-a-vis -vis the payer. And then what the payer can do is agree under a contract to say, we will uh, transfer some of those cost savings to actually run the clinical trial itself. So essentially it's a, it's a self-funding clinical trial. It's called yep. interventional pharmacoeconomics. Yep. And um, the beauty of the system is that even if the clinical trial fails, you've still locked in those cost savings. So there's absolutely, there's no need for the payer to, to budget four years ahead and have a contingency. Just by putting half of their patient population on, on low cost ketamine, they've already locked in those savings. Of course, you know, there's an ethical dilemma. You have to be pretty certain and, and that this treatment is going to be just as effective if not more effective than the uh than the expensive treatment but to to solve that problem you can do a much smaller trials and you can basically play around with dosing and or come up with other interventions that might be uh better not just ketamine other other treatments but as long as they're very low cost and they can substitute the very high cost treatment you can basically substitute any low cost treatment for the for the expensive treatment and the and the, and the more expensive the treatment is, the more leverage you have and essentially 
Um, you could just iterate and continue to iterate until you come up with a, a treatment protocol that's effective as long as it's low cost and then scale and then basically have these clinical trials that are essentially self-funding um, and paid out of cost savings. So this is a kind of a, the contractual way of basically building a business model for funding these um, uh, otherwise unmonopolizable therapies, even things like a diet. You know, if you right. were to look at a diet and compare it against sort of late stage expensive standard of care using sort of the the latest chemo drugs, um, you can uh, you can come up with uh, uh, the same business model where they essentially run these trials, essentially paying for themselves. The tricky part is getting the different parties to agree and, and agree to pay cost savings out of the, the money saved to fund the clinical trials. Um Another area where interventional pharmacoeconomics has been used, uh, not so much for generic drug repurposing, what we're talking about, it's been used where you have an expensive cancer drug and you compare the full dose of the cancer drug to a much lower dose of the cancer drug. And okay. typically, like a lot of cancer drugs, particularly um, ones checkpoint inhibitors or um, ones that kind of uh, just, they're, they're very targeted. You don't actually need a very high dose of that drug and you could maybe dose it at 10%. And then you could stockpile that that um, those drugs for future um, years. And you know, um, of course, pharma companies I think would probably react to that model quite quickly. They would probably try and price their drugs at a certain way, according right. to weight, or, or you know, have contractual limitations on on how how those drugs can be stockpiled. I don't think that they could do that realistically very easily. I mean, a big example is this uh, for macular degeneration. There was a drug called um, Lucentis, uh, and, it, and it was basically a reformulated version of this other drug called Avastin, which was an anti-cancer drug, but it was mm -hmm. an anti-angiogenesis drug. But yeah. it was estimated to uh, basically that that one Avastin injection was like $25 compared to $800 or something dollars for Lucentis. And the ophthalmologists figured out that they could just get the the Avastin and, and there's nothing really that other drug company could have done um, to, to stop them from doing that. And, and that was estimated to save around $10 billion uh, for, for CMS uh, or Medicaid. Um, so you can really save a lot of money using this model. And then the idea is that you can use those cost savings to then fund a lot of uh, research that that probably pharma wouldn't be uh, incentivized to do under the the blockbuster drug model. Really, really interesting model. No, I I I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed that uh, very much, and and see the uh, uh, the potential in, in many areas for for what you're you're proposing here. Um, you, you mentioned you know the esketamine example. Uh, and and I would just you know I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that specifically. You know because um, and I, I don't know, you know, sort of in New Zealand and in, in, in your area of the world, but up here, uh, I mean, psychedelics in general um, are, are going crazy as a sort of a, this, this evolving segment. And, you know, I, I've, I've profiled a variety of groups on the show, everyone from, you know, the Thai pharma of the world, which are, you know, pharmaceutical, re-pharmaceuticalizing them to, uh folks that are using the generics, like I had uh, John Wang, one from Johns Hopkins, it's just using, you know, dextromethorphan cough syrup for uh, drug-resistant depression. Uh, Dennis McKenna, who, you know, he has his own beliefs, you know, we should all be smoking ayahuasca <laughs> down in Peru. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a variety of opinions. Nonetheless, you know, psychedelics have, you know, come to the fore as uh, 
pharmacotherapeutic interventions with very unique kinetics, pharmacologies, and so forth that are just unexplored. And it seems like that's a perfect path um, per crowdfunding cures. Talk a little bit about, if you can say more about the esketamine, because I, I, I know there's a specific project that you got, but take us a little more into sort of the psychedelic component of this. Yeah, no, I think, and, and also I think longevity as well, we can talk about that, but psychedelics, yeah, well, that, that's longevity. That's my next question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, uh, there, there is obviously a little bit of a hype, hype train at the moment with psychedelics. However, there is some very uh, promising data. And the, the, the other issue, I think, which makes this more interesting is that there is a lot of pushback on the idea of kind of monopolizing psychedelics. These are, you know, particularly a lot of the psychedelics, maybe plant medicines and particularly psilocybin. Right where the, um, you know, and, and there might be reasons why the actual plant version, uh, we might have even co-evolved with it. So it might actually yep. be a lot um, healthier and, and a better drug versus, say, the, the, the crystallized version of it. I think, you know, as a, as an example, maybe not the oh, best yeah. one, but I understand that that uh, aspirin, the original, came from like a willow bark, and mm -hmm. but the 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 willow bark version is it doesn't have the uh, same uh, ulcer risk. Now I might I'm not I might not be right about no that you're you're honest, right it has, but, it has all this, sorts of weird yeah. glycosylation patterns that yeah no it's, I, I was involved in that business twenty years ago but we'll we'll talk about that offline. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. Um, but that sort of thing, and I think, um, and particularly uh, the idea that, you know, and, and I think that's what a lot of uh, psychedelics companies are going to run into, is that when they try and monopolize something, they're just going to, it's a bit of a short-lived thing because people are going to start doing these head-to-head -head studies where they figure out, okay, these these drugs, uh, uh, you know, actually are effective in this particular, and it's not so much the the molecule, it's really more about everything else and the therapy and the set and setting and and these these are the things that we should be pursuing instead of just trying to follow the patent system and having the patent system dictate what gets in patients and what treatments get to patients instead of actually what's the best thing for patients and what's the healthiest um, um, you know what what's actually better treatment. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it, yeah, it's almost all the psychedelics have this issue where the the ingredients are off patent, um, you know, LSD, MDMA. Uh, you've got maps which basically are, have this anti-patent strategy which they're taking to market and that's great but the the reason they can sort of get away with it is because they would have the only say fda approved version of mdma but then as soon as um mdma becomes potentially legalized um you know and and available for multiple sources then that's going to um you know basically not really be a long-term model but then on the other hand maps i think aren't they're not really so concerned with that side of things versus maybe another more traditional farmer. Right. But I think again, with compass pathways, what they're doing with psilocybin and their, and their polymorph a um, sort of crystalline version of psilocybin, I think they will just run up against the fact that people will be able to access the truffles um, uh, for relatively low cost and, and be, and be, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of clinics using it therapeutically. And so, but you've got this issue then, this market failure, and the same thing we're seeing with ketamine is that you've got a lot of people, a lot of clinics using it off-label, and there's this kind of perception that sort of it's a bit of a wild west out there, which I think doesn't help um, patients and doctors. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, doctors prescribing esketamine, but then a lot of the patients, um, uh, potentially esketamine maybe is not not as good, or it is it might be very good, but then it's extremely expensive. Um and and so you've got this problem with people not necessarily 
sort of stuck between uh, doing an, an off-label clinic and potentially where where they're what's happening at the moment is their health insurers will not reimburse uh, ketamine off-label, so they actually mm-hmm. have to pay it out of pocket. And ironically, even though it's a lot cheaper because of the cost of the clinics and everything else, um, they're having to. It's it's actually really expensive for them. And and you've got people that are that are you know suicidal and dying um, because they're not don't have access to 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 uh, very safe, effective, low cost medicines. So. Uh, very real problems, I think, um, and due to this market failure. And I think, you know, something where I think a forward-thinking payer uh, could actually solve the problem just by doing this head-to-head study, comparative clinical trial where they've got a massive esketamine budget, um, then, you know, they could actually just self-fund it uh, sure. through, uh, 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 get ketamine FDA approved just uh, through this uh, scalable model. And then there's other ways essentially through to, to use these advanced market commitments that I'm talking about to basically solve that last mile problem and get a pharma company to actually optimize the protocol for the low cost intervention. Then more importantly, if something actually goes wrong and ketamine ends up not being the best drug, uh, you know, they've got recall insurance, product liability insurance, they've got someone to sue. I think that's a very important thing that is missing from the current model, which is where you've got grant funding if something, if you pay for a grant and then some doctor goes and prescribes the things off label, there's no real incentive to keep, you know, if something goes wrong, like are you going to sue the government or the or the researcher that that published the original clinical trial? It's not very, uh, it's not very scalable that model. So, um, yeah. Let's um, let's hop over to longevity um, because uh, and and just a little background um, for. for folks have been watching the show I, you know i've done some repurposing episodes on on very specific niche orphan indications and rapamycin uh pops up all the time uh we do on the show we did with castleman's disease we did a show on proteus syndrome and and, and you know rapamycin has a, you know, this awesome potential to you know not just for organ transplantation but really to modulate the immune system and then we've had folks on from Matt Caberline to Brad Stansfield looking at rapamycin, not just for specific disease indications, but broader in terms of uh, health span. Um, I neglected to mention at the beginning of the show that in addition to all your activities at Crowdfunded Cures, you were also a legal advisor to uh, this organization, Vita Dow, which is getting a lot of press lately uh, over here. Um, take us into a little bit of what you think about in general uh, when when you think about longevity and sort of these broader indications for repurposing and, and a little bit of what I, I don't know how much you could you talk provided out but um, if you can mention a little bit about that model and how it sort of synergizes with the, what you guys are up to. Sure, I mean, yeah, Vita Dow is the um, sort of the crypto side of things, and it's obviously its own little rabbit hole. But I think uh, you know, I think personally, think that's a super exciting project. I think that's. You know, crypto has got has has had a lot of flack, but this uh, the idea of DeSci, decentralized science, I think is is almost like going to be the most important use case for crypto, and and also uh, deep down, what crypto are trying to do, and at least a lot of the movements, so the more positive movements like what they call regenerative finance and DeSci, is about fixing a lot of the misaligned incentives under the current um, system with capitalism, and that includes. Um, you know, addressing these kinds of market failures through essentially what they call smart contracts, but essentially um, the, the same as like real contracts, but, you know, and, and, and essentially creating a way of, of um, 
incentivizing people to do what's best for for everybody and and create what they call public goods rather than um uh you know doing uh, creating extractive models where where only certain few people benefit and uh to the expense of of, of many but um in the longevity field and this is what Vita Dow I think is they're also working on this particular field which I think is the probably you know it's it's got a lot in common with crypto actually and a lot of overlap um, between crypto actually crypto psychedelics longevity is so there's a bit of overlap um, at least culturally um but uh the, the thing with longevity is that it's 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 such a an important um and relatively neglected area at least until recently though um of, of health and and one that could have a massive health impact so you know off often um quoted uh, is that you know if you cure cancer tomorrow you might increase uh, lifespan by four four years or so but you know if you can if you can come up with a a longevity intervention that increases healthy lifespan by say 10 years then you know you basically uh you know you can add billions and trillions and trillions of dollars to kind of, of, of to gdp and value and and sort of having people um uh, and obviously keeping them out of hospital and, and and healthier longer that's also got a lot of um economic benefits um but on with regards to this particular um model and and why i think what we're talking about with these uh, unmonopolizable therapies or therapies where the traditional patent model might not work um you've most of the drugs that we know uh, or we've got the most evidence for that might improve healthy lifespan so things like rapamycin metformin nmn um you know nad uh vitamin d all these other things um you know, calorie restriction uh resveratrol uh, they're all off patent and so um you know there's very limited incentives to to do this research and and you've got sort of a lot of projects stuck in limbo and with brad stanfield um you know he's looking at doing a rapamycin study combined with exercise so sort of a long a lifestyle intervention plus rapamycin and this very clever way of like you know dosing one on the weekend and then you do exercise during a week so it sort of balances out mTOR and so a lot of thought, a lot of innovation around how this, uh, you know, potentially might work and improve strength in the elderly, which is correlated very highly with healthy longevity. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, he's got to go around, you know, trying to raise money on YouTube, um, trying to, he is working with Vita Dow. They did get a, a bit of a grant. We are actually working with uh, Vita Dow and another organization, um, Protocol Labs, in this uh, HyperCerts uh, framework where we're looking at doing what's called a longevity prize, where we try and raise like a retroactive fund, which is a little bit like this advanced mark commitment I was talking about, um, mm -hmm. where essentially you create a, a prepayment, agreeing to prepay for clinical trial data, successful clinical trial data. Um, but yeah, I think it is it is an area. Um, it's obviously a little bit more difficult um, to go to health insurers or get governments on board just because, I think there is a lot of uh, controversy still, unfortunately, around the idea of longevity and improving longevity and whether aging is a disease and whether it's recognized mm -hmm. as a disease. So there's sort of political barriers even on top of what, what we, we're facing. So uh, for that reason, I think crypto might be an area where they can sort of jump the gun a bit. And at least in the past, there was a lot of people that were interested in longevity, also quite wealthy, um, that might... Uh, you know, be interested in these different models outside the traditional grant model where they have to take on all the risk of which projects to, to, to fund with this kind of pay-for-success model we call impact markets. Essentially, they can uh, just create like a prize fund that pays out for successful clinical trials. Um, 
and and um so so yeah we're hoping to be able to to push things forward obviously though it's uh um very hard to do fundraising and things and and explain um how things working but i think uh needles ticking along and yeah vita dow definitely a great project uh yeah amazing community scientists and yeah they just raised four four point one million i think and yeah but is around five thousand in the community and just uh yeah great great to be involved there just more on the legal side and i can go mm -hmm. in on this ip nft model as well what they're doing uh with molecule um also raised around 12 million or 18 million now i think um so so kind of yeah that's it's kind of a healthy uh yeah particularly there's also pfizer apparently invested in vita dow as well so there's a bit of sort of legitimacy uh on the basis of um yeah that they're that's apparently their first longevity intervention uh sorry investment so it's quite mm -hmm. interesting yeah no it's uh it's uh, it's been interesting to watch and i and i sometimes have a hard time wrapping my head around distributive science but uh it's been interesting seeing them come along and see how uh you know that that evolves uh, because definitely um these health span trials uh are going to need some um unique <laughs> thinking about ultimately how this gets done and uh i i think uh, again your your you know crowdfunding cures model fits nicely uh into, into components of this so uh, that's um it's nice to see um so talk a little bit about because i know and uh, i watched some of your your previous presentations and you've mentioned um you know the theme of, of branded generics um as as a component of this potentially in the sense that you know you and I could work together on, you know, improving you know, the quality of life adjusted years and and, and make money you know, by saving money in, in the healthcare system. But there is the potential here for for novel products to come out. You know, not every product, of course, if we're if we're dealing with the truly single molecule generic that there's not really a great way to to redo but in some of these especially um uh we look at say the nutraceuticals uh you know back in the 1990s the fda created a, a segment here in the united states known as the botanical drug um which very few companies went into i have a, my own background story there but I, that's another that's for another show but um where it is possible nowadays if you have you know if you have the interest to take a a mixture uh a plant mixture down the drug path uh to create a, a new branded product at the end of the day that it has to be different than the nutraceutical on the market in the sense of you know concentration and all that but so there, there are some interesting ways to create new products talk a little bit about some of your ideas in terms of branded and a branded generics isn't sort of the i would say the, the re the repurposed brand or whatever we want to call it but, but take us through some of your ideas in that space if you would because i think there's other revenue streams here that are interesting yeah, I mean, and and this is something I think that traditional farmer are quite familiar with. But what I think what you're talking about, there's an area. It's it's more of a spectrum of say uh, drugs which are like a brand new kind of say unique uh, new molecular entities on one side of the spectrum, and then on the other side, um, which is the area that we're sort of interested, in, which is these really really unmonopolizable things where essentially you've got a unreformulated generic that's perhaps. Uh, you know, in its original formulation, and and it's you know available everywhere, and you can't really you know stop people from accessing it or buying it. Uh, or a nutraceutical, you can just buy online on the internet for very very cheap. Um, or a lifestyle intervention, or a diet, plant medicine, things like that. Um, and then you've got this kind of like in between model where like you can look at say uh, you know extracting things and purifying, 
in a way that's uh in, in, in a way that's not the same as the, the 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 one that's out there in the public and and what we call like reformulations so basically right. where you might combine different nutrition nutraceutical with another um with another generic so for instance what the latest ALS drug uh, I forgot the name but it's being priced at $160,000 a year it's yeah. actually just this uh it's a some some sort of supplement actually you can buy online and uh-huh. and uh for like $30 a month and uh and this uh, this generic drug which happens to be I think it was around $7,000 a month I think it's just because it's a very kind of yeah, I think it's more that not many people are making this particular generic drug, and right. this is why. So there's a limited supply of it, and and that's why it's quite expensive. But you know, obviously, um, this this company um, created a, a and 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 they're projecting like a billion dollars in sales. Um, so so it's going to be a proper blockbuster drug, um, and and it was done through this kind of reformulation model. So there's definitely scope to create um, reformulations and make money out of them, and there's a lot of examples of that happening. Um, however, it's, it's very selective. Like you're not going to be able to do it. For example, if, if this drug, uh, you know, uh, certain areas where, you know, particularly where, where it's a disease where doctors going to be more conservative and less willing to prescribe off label, uh, right. you're going to have maybe less, uh, involvement of compounding pharmacies. We don't know what the story is actually going to be with the sale is struggling. They might run into issues with compounding pharmacies, who knows? Um, but they've still, um, you know, these things are all kind of commercial considerations as well as yeah. IP considerations. So, so it does kind of gray and muddy up the area a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're very much focused, I think, on the very, very uh, left side where, where essentially it is going to be very difficult to, to basically essentially get a composition of matter patent for like a reformulation and treat it just like it's a, it's a monopoly price drug and, and sell it that way. Uh, but you talked about branded generics and I think it still fits in there. What what we're kind of looking at is almost like it is going to be a branded generic. So for instance, with ketamine, our version of ketamine, it's still going to be the same, uh, you know, $2 version of dose of ketamine. Uh, and, and But we could brand it as say open ketamine or ketamine uh-huh. for de- whatever for depression. And, and we could price it slightly above the, the, that, um, the low cost. Now, of course, there's a risk it could be substituted out at the pharmacy level and things like that. And that's kind of the the reason for the market failure. But when you've got a branded uh, generic, you can actually have a contract. And the idea is that you would, A, for instance, you could use this interventional pharmacoeconomic model to basically get the data from a payer paid out of cost savings for free. So your, your costs, you know, your, your, you don't necessarily need to make as much revenue back to make, to make return on investment, or there's a kind of partnership arrangement with, with the payers. And then you also can, uh, uh, basically, uh, the idea of the, the way to get around this idea of something which is unmonopolizable with having a business model around it, is you have this contractual commitment in advance to say, if we get through FDA approval, we will purchase your brand and we are not going to substitute it. Um, with a cheaper brand or we're just going to guarantee you a little bit like the the subscription uh the netflix subscription model we mm-hmm. talked about with antibiotics we're sure. just going to guarantee you minimum sales of say 25 million dollars a year um just for having this and, and and then you just supply it to us at whatever price the marginal cost of, of the suppliers and there's other things you can do except to build a moat um basically uh, there's this uh idea of so rims i think it's basically like sure. a uh, where you have a dangerous control drug and a bit like ketamine, you can basically have a REMS plan where 
the FDA requires you to use our branded version um, in, in conjunction with therapy and, and make sure that's not being uh, abused. Or, uh, obviously, you can't use that for other types of drugs, um, but you can leverage method of use patents. And then you can, I think, get into the kind of more traditional reformulation space. But once you start pushing into reformulation, you are getting into the kind of more traditional pharma kind of model and uh, it's it's might you have to do maybe safety tests again and it's it, it starts to get a little bit more expensive um sure sure but, but but it's definitely a model that that has been done and 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 actually a lot of pharma companies tend to just it's 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 seen as a little bit of a perjurative way of thinking about it where they just talk about these evergreening and they just do a new reformulation of like an old drug and it's not really much better than the old drug but then they push a lot <laughs> marketing dollars into it and and push it onto doctors and get them to try and switch to the to the expensive version um so definitely yeah, not a new new idea yeah and I, I was you know, i was thinking more from the perspective of uh sort of some of the combinations that are never tried that you know if you put two generics together that you know may be quite synergistic and but again you the same issues and you know you, you never know how you know what what uh I've, I've seen some interesting patents actually in the past where you know one plus one equals much more than two but again these things are never developed uh beyond just the idea so um no it's it's as i was just bringing it up in the sense to to sort of complete the landscape that there are you know many tributaries that that run from this and i think you know it's an impressive you know model that you put together and you know a lot of uh sort of you know things things come off of this um that you know maybe have not been accessible um in the past and and this you know you know allows you to take a new look at the uh, at, at these uh at these methodologies and potential for new interventions so i i'm you know i'm excited for you i i as i said i i enjoyed i didn't i didn't read all whatever thousand pages of, of your thesis but i did enjoy diving into uh to how you were thinking about this 10 years ago and to see it you know coming to fruition in this way is, is exciting. Um, anything else uh, that, that, that's coming up for 2023 that I missed or that you might want to mention um, in terms of where you're going to be and the conferences you're going to be presenting at or places that we can meet you and anything else, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so definitely, it's not definitely not there yet. So we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, it's still definitely uh, very much in the theoretical stage, but we are pushing forward with trying to validate the model and, and talk to payers and find payers that care. So a big problem in the States, particularly is that, you know, a lot of the traditional kind of health insurers, you know, they don't necessarily want to reduce the the the, the costs of the U.S. healthcare system from from a four trillion dollar industry to a two trillion dollar industry because that's two trillion dollars worth of salaries and sales that, that that they're throwing out the window. So there are these perverse incentives, and and a lot of the times it's the 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 customer, like the people, basically end up paying the very high premiums, and they're very happy to pay them because they think, well, I just saved a million dollars on this uh, on this uh, on this. Uh, drug or this therapy so i'm happy to keep paying twenty thousand dollars a year or whatever it might be but you know they don't get to see that you know there's been a rebate or or, or there's, there's not a lot of price transparency and things like that so there is this there's there's a lot of uh perverse incentives at the moment um particularly under the u.s healthcare system so part of the difficulty is finding who cares and and you know so we're trying to talk to va we're trying to talk to cms you know people like the u.s army 
um, and particularly self-insured employers. I mean, you'd think that they want to reduce costs because if they're uh, covering their employers, employees' uh, healthcare costs and their employees are sick, you know, they also want to keep their employees healthy uh, because that ultimately improves their, their profit, their bottom line. Um, so we think that's probably a good area to to start with a pilot and we're trying to engage with folks, but definitely, yeah, if anyone out there listening um, knows people that we can talk to, or I mean, I think initially we're going to have to get philanthropy to basically back these studies, do this initial interventional pharmacoeconomic study to so, sort of show the payers how the model works and how the cost right. savings would work and things like that. So that's kind of where we're at. We're, we're looking for um, to 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 engage and find partners. Um, we're sort of partnering with other CROs, basically contract research organizations that do this sort of thing, which are aligned. And um, yeah, just trying to kind of push forward. As far as conferences go, I kind of did that last year. I was evangelizing a bit, sort of went on about 10 podcasts or so. And, and um, you know, I still want to raise awareness. I think that's going to be important. Hopefully just the right person kind of um, hears about this and it's, uh, might want to lend a hand or some um, funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are, yeah, we are also looking to raise funding as well, non-dilutive and and, and dilutive funding. Um, I am planning to be in SF around uh, April, May this year. Uh, and then I'll be in Europe likely from uh, June, July, August, uh, September, um, probably doing some, uh, probably on the crypto circuit, but, but also... Um, uh, you know, be sort of in and out of London. I work remotely out of London, uh, doing a bit of legal consulting on the side while I'm trying to get this uh, underway. But um, yeah, as I was saying, so last year I went to around sort of speaking around 10 conferences as well, mostly crypto um, and in the DeSci space, but also it was at Wonderland Conference and and um, there's a psychedelic conference in, um, in Miami talking about uh, these pay for success models and in the context of psychedelics. But yeah, I think uh, not sure exactly which conferences, but probably yeah, I missed the um, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I sort of it's been good to take a break a little bit in in, in New Zealand, kind of uh, just kind of focus on on the market validation side and start talking to potential partners on um, mm-hmm. and, and focusing on a pilot. Excellent, excellent. Well, I said I'm re- I'm rooting you on. Uh, we will help. Uh amplify the message uh, and it's you know i i wish you the best with it because it's a it, it is a uh a sorely needed model and, and i'm glad you've you know brought it this far so you know to date um again for everybody that's going to be listening to this particular episode of our show across the various podcast networks or watching on the youtube channel uh you've been listening to saba kardamalitis founder and ceo of crown funded cures uh we will put um the link in the bio of the show also you know everyone wants to do a really deep dive check out his uh, uh his thesis online deadly gaps in the patent system um Sava, i want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk for a little while about this fascinating area um obviously thank you for championing it and uh as we like to say on our show here thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow via uh, what you're doing it's a, it's a really great story and again wishing you the best with all of it Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, and thanks for having me on and, and helping also uh, spread it and uh, the the word and also, yeah, just being, yeah, we, we, we had some deep dives, uh, but it's a lot of a lot of other things and happy to talk to anyone that's interested in this topic. Just uh, reach out uh, um, to me at sava at crowdfundedcures.org. 
Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Be well. Cool. Thanks.